0: at the first inauguration. I announced, and my staff didn't know I was going to say this. I mean, it's literally written in the margins of my inaugural speech, that I was going to make Philadelphia the number one green city in America.
1: Yeah.
0: And they heard it for the first time when I said it from the stage. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're the mayor and you've got 15 inches of snow on the ground, unlike some other jobs, like, you can't just like go and give a speech. <laughs> You know, I mean people like okay, well that was interesting, but you got fifteen inches of snow and people need to get to work or go to school or whatever. So they expect you to do something.
1: Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, Chairman of the Paulson Institute and today I'm speaking with Michael Nutter. Mike is a former two-term mayor of Philadelphia who previously spent almost 15 years in the Philadelphia City Council. Under his leadership as mayor, Philadelphia's high school graduation and college degree attainment rates increased significantly. Homicides were brought to a 50-year low and its credit ratings were upgraded to the A category for the first time since the 1970s. Mike served as the President of the United States Conference of Mayors and since leaving public office in 2016, he has remained active in public policy, government, and civic life. He serves on the advisory board of the African American Mayors Association and is a founder of Cities United. He also serves as a David N. Dinkins Professor of Professional Practice in Urban and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Mike, welcome to the podcast. We've had the opportunity to work on a number of initiatives, and you really know how to get things done. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion.
0: Hank, thanks for having me.
1: Glad to have you here. Let's start with your early life. You were born and raised in Philadelphia. What was it growing up black in West Philadelphia?
0: Well, so this is, uh, you know, I was born in the late, uh, in the late 50s, I think. 57 might have been the height of the baby boom. So I think there are a lot of us <laughs> from uh, from that time. And the neighborhood was, uh, I've often described it as kind of uh, middle, middle class. We were the, the nutters. We were the third black family on our block. And I would say by the time I was about 10, uh, there may have been three white families left. So a pretty significant change. The times today are somewhat reminiscent. There was a... Uh, but, uh, you know, different, but the fair amount of racial strife, I mean, this has still gone into the 60s. I was six years old uh, in first grade when President Kennedy was killed. And uh, remember that day very specifically, um, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, uh, Man on the Moon, you know, at the same time, significant concerns about violence and also police brutality. Uh, in Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo uh, had been the uh, police commissioner and then the mayor. Um, gang war activity, uh, all of that. And I was you know going through grade school and and into high school. so it was it was an interesting time, that's for sure
1: yeah i, I was in you know i was I'm a few years older. I was in high school, so I still remember what it was like when it came over the p a system that the President Kennedy was shot. and yeah. then, oh my gosh, the others uh, Bobby Kennedy Martin yeah Martin King, yeah. Yeah. I, I lived in a suburb of Chicago, so I was insulated okay. to the extent, but, you know, the police brutality I, is Chicago 7, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Amir Daily. Sure. So what was your family like? Uh, did you get inspiration there to pursue your career in local government?
0: No, not really. I mean, politics was not the family business. Uh, My father had been in pharmaceutical sales uh, from time to time. He was a plumber. My mom had the more stable job, if you will. She went to work right out of high school at uh, at the time, Bell Telephone, and worked at Bell Telephone now, of course, Verizon, uh, but worked there for 33 years, you know, raised uh, my, my sister and I, and You know, it was the four of us and my grandmother. So my mom's, my mother's mother lived with us. Uh, My mom is a twin and they had a younger brother, but my mom was the last one out of the house. And so I guess it was last one out of the house takes grandma. Uh, so So she lived with us. And uh, I developed a very very close uh, relationship with her. Her room was right next to mine. She had the kind of the last room in the in the house, and we became very close uh, over time. But you know, it, it was the kind of neighborhood where all the parents, you know, worked or were active or you know doing anything. Most of them had not gone to college, and the goal. Was for all of us as kids, you know, these sixties and seventies kids to go to college. That was the uh, that was the goal of our parents, and virtually everybody in my neighborhood uh, ended up going to college,
1: and that makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And so then I'm trying to get at because you know I think everybody knows you it was this highly successful mayor well but you you're kind a, a long time you know it's kind yeah. but it's got the added virtue of being true right you because you were so so but you spent you know a long time in city government first yeah. you know so how did you decide to go from you know what in college or what was yeah. it well, that you wanted to get back to the community
0: it's 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 kind of a funny story so even though politics was not the family business, I mean, I was paying attention. It was, you know, we just talked about, you know, it was the 60s, right? So I was 10 turning 11 when Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were killed in in 68. The Vietnam War was still going on uh, when I was a teenager. So I was paying attention. You certainly recall the barrel with the, you know, the balls and, and picking numbers and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the war was starting to wind down, but I was paying attention you know, the 68 convention in Chicago and all this strife going on in America. I had a great American history teacher at my high school, Uh, went to St. Joe's Prep, uh, Jerry Taylor. And he really gave me a sense and helped inspire me just to pay attention to what was going on in American politics and in history and, and, and government. But my real story of public service, I mean, other than my parents instilling a sense of, you know, responsibility in the community. And every Saturday, people went out and, you know, swept their their steps and their sidewalk. And we had block meetings and parties and all that kind of stuff. But I went to, I went to Penn. And my best friend from high school, Robert Bynum, he and I, best friends still today, went to Penn together. He went to Wharton. I was a biomedical engineering major. I admitted to the engineering school because I was pre-med. And freshman, first semester chemistry, it became very clear that I was not going to be a doctor because I was on my way to failing a chemistry course. And so, you know, I needed a change of direction. In any event, the following summer, summer of 76, Robert's dad opened the first Black owned discotheque in Philadelphia. And we went to work there. And it was there at 19 that I started meeting all these elected officials and candidates and people who wanted to be involved in politics, and that's where I really started to see what was happening. You, of course, recall the rise of black elected officials and black politics in the 70s, mid 70s to late 70s, and it was at this nightclub that I started really seeing what was going on on the political scene in Philadelphia. One thing led to another. I started working with, volunteering for a city council person in the early 80s. Chicago was on the verge of electing its first black mayor, Harold Washington in 1983, Philly and Chicago are on the same election cycle, Wilson Good was running in that 83 race in Philly, and my guy was running for reelection for city council, so I was now getting involved in the political process in Philadelphia, 25 years old, and that's where the inspiration came from, and the understanding about public service.
1: Interesting, I'm going to go on with public service, but you said something that resonated with me, it sounds like you went to a Catholic school, right?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, born and raised Catholic, uh, Catholic grade school and a Jesuit high school.
1: Yeah, well, I remember and Maybe I've remembered this incorrectly, but when I was in the White House as a kid and we were looking at education, I think it was Philadelphia where John Cardinal Cole yes. was. And mm-hmm. because I remember then looking at education and looking at the per capita cost had doubled, the overall cost had tripled in America and and the output hadn't increased you know, the quality hadn't increased, but in a few places, it made a big difference. And one was Philadelphia, and I remember spending time with Cardinal Kroll. And I remember then thinking, going to Richard Nixon, obviously it went nowhere, and saying, you know what, this property tax is a blight on urban America. Mm-hmm. And it's unfair in terms of what it does to education, because right. wealthier neighborhoods are better, you know, mm-hmm. in the suburbs have yeah. a better focus. And we should Bigger do what... We should do away with urban property tax. We should have a value added tax or something to fund, you know, mm. fund schools wow. and do something. And so, any event. So it's fast. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, well, the the other aspect of it was, you know, if they brought nuns into the public school system, uh, you would probably see a dramatic difference Absolutely. As, as well. You know, they, 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 they have a way of inspiring you. No, no. No, it, was, it was definitely different.
1: So now so i want to go and talk a little bit you were regarded as and, and rightfully so as one of america's most distinguished and successful mayors and we'll talk more about that in a minute but i want to know about sort of the, the path to becoming mayor mm. how did you yeah did you decide to run and and what were yeah. some of the challenges you uh, faced along the way
0: sure so You know, coming out of that initial start in 1983, working with uh, City Councilman John Anderson, Wilson Goode goes on to become mayor. Unfortunately, John Anderson, the councilman who was my mentor, died that same year in 1983, about a month before the election. So, But we had talked that summer of 83 about me running for city council in a district race four years later in 1987, which I did do. Unfortunately, I lost, but learned a lot and then ran again in 91 and was successful. And then, I, I I mean, I was a pretty active city council person. I mean, I had a district, but I was also very much into the legislative process. So, you know, I did the smoking ban in Philadelphia, ethics reform, created an ethics board, campaign finance reform, you know, just very active, very visible in that way. Um, unlike Chicago, we have a two-term limit in Philadelphia. So we're coming up on 2007 at the time. i um, in my fourth term in my late 40s and my now predecessor during his administration there have been some challenges uh, in terms of crime in terms of some ethics uh, related issues not specifically with regard to the mayor but some other people in the administration and I was just I was starting to feel like what am I going to do I make it say in city council forever which I loved but you know I wanted to do more thought I had some ideas and as they say you know no one's ever scored a touchdown from the sidelines. And so if I was going to get engaged, you know, kind of put yourself out there. So I took a poll in May of 2006, you know, kind of much like Chicago, Philly, heavily Democratic city. If you win the Democratic primary, you should go on to win the general election. So about a year before the primary in May of 87, I took this poll, well-known, highly regarded, Garen Hart Yang, Democratic polling firm, comes back and says, in a five-way race, all the names that they put in, I could not win.
1: Yeah,
0: and it's like a serious poll with serious money, and this is May of 06. In June of 06, I announced that I was resigning my seat in city council and going to run for mayor with a poll in hand that said that basically I couldn't win. It ended up being a five-way race. Two members of Congress, a powerful state legislator who had been chair of the House Appropriations Committee for 20 years, and a first time in Philadelphia, a self-funder, a multimillionaire who put $10 million into his own campaign and raised another two and then unemployed me now at that time, former city councilman. I think the path was uh, we had a plan and the plan was to talk about issues and to campaign hard. I was fortunate to have serious support from my family. We were able to put a series of compelling ads on TV for about eight weeks, and we started to see some movement in our own internal polling. I talked about public safety because it was an issue. I talked about public education because it was an issue. I talked about jobs and sustainability because they were issues, and integrity and in government, transparency and openness. That message I think resonated with some folks. People were ready for reform. They were ready for change. They were tired of the crime. They were tired of corruption and scandals. I was fortunate to have a spectacular one of the ads featured uh, my daughter who in 30 seconds told my story better than I could in an hour. And people started paying attention to us and we won. I got 37% of the vote in a five way race, 40% of the black vote, 37% of the white vote. And you know, like I said, you win the Democratic primary, you should go on to win the general election, and I did.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, Mike, the number of people like you who are highly successful that have had some adversity along the way. And that's what yeah. you, you learn a lot, you know, and the fact that you lost, you know, yeah. your first election, you lost. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You right. And some people will get to Which no one now remembers. <laughs> <laughs> no one
1: remembers. And some people, but... I think the real satisfaction people get is doing something that's hard and then succeeding and boy, yeah. did you succeed as mayor, but I want to have a conversation now about race. You yeah. you have a really unique vantage point about this issue that the country is still grappling with, grappling mm-hmm. with big time today, social justice and race. Yeah. What do you think is missing from today's national conversation? and how can we move forward as a country because boy we really need to
0: well i mean thank you for what you said i think part of what's missing from the national conversation quite honestly is a national conversation as americans we just all have to become more comfortable because we're going to be uncomfortable but we have to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable about talking about race this is the one thing you know, other than your own personal income. I mean, no one actually wants to have a conversation about race. People are either afraid, they're nervous, they think they're going to say the wrong thing. Some people think, you know, well, look, we elected a black president. I mean, like, everything's okay, right? Uh, some people use that as a, as a badge. You know, well, wait a minute, I voted for Barack Obama twice. I can't be a racist. Like, what does that have to do with anything? So, and then I think just, there are many, many Americans who just don't want to acknowledge the history it's either like it never happened or they're not responsible of course not personally but in many instances people are beneficiaries of you know the system of slavery and oppression and discrimination much of which is still you know with us today and so i think the first part of dealing with this is being willing to try to deal with it You know, I don't want any, I, you know, I don't want somebody else's stuff. I want my own stuff. You know, black people want to be able to buy a house, just like white people. Black people want to be able to get a job. You literally want to be able to go outside and not be shot or attacked. You know, black people believe in public safety. Uh, We're not against the police and law enforcement per se. What people are against is police brutality and being abused. Uh, And so, I'm hopeful, I mean, it's been a, you know, tough, you know, almost four years with many of the things that have come out of the Trump administration and the rise of hate groups. I mean, you know, I mean, the FBI tells us all the time, obviously, we had to pay attention to international threats, international terrorism. But I mean, we've got homegrown terrorists, you know, white nationalist groups and, and others right here in the United States of America, we need to pay attention to them. So, you know, but look, I'm an eternal optimist. I think that we can continue to kind of get ourselves together. I do believe in the more perfect union and just being willing to, you know, raise these topics like like you. And I mean, I don't know if the listeners know, I mean, you know, you and Erskine Bowles and the Economic Strategy Group, I mean, you're willing to have these conversations. And I just, I'm hopeful that other leaders, people, that folks respect, will be willing to at least listen. This is an incredible country. I've had an incredible amount of opportunity. I still have much to give back, but we have to have these conversations.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I believe in progress. And I do think one of the great things about the United States of America is when there's a problem, we usually shine a light on it. Mm -hmm. And it's often what we see is very messy and wrong, but then we work to make it better, right. and uh, that should be—that's yeah. the, the best of America, right?
0: And we have to be willing to put in the work. I mean, these are not simple. It's not going to
1: happen without work. Yeah. It's not going to happen by saying a few words, and which really gets me to my next topic here, which is—I've heard you say it so much I can almost say the, the words myself—and think that I invented them because I've heard you say time and again talk about the uniquely pragmatic problem-solving orientation of American mayors. They don't get wrapped up in ideological debates because they're busy solving real problems. Right. And if they don't solve them, they don't get elected. The problems that voters care about. So talk a bit about that and mm-hmm. what do you think our national politicians can learn from our mayors? Right.
0: You know, one of the one of the examples I use, you know, uh, climate change notwithstanding, I mean, I guess when we used to get a lot of snow uh, and I'm not wishing for it, but, you know, cities like, you know, Philly and Chicago and New York and a bunch of other places and down south, they might not get a lot of snow, but they get a lot of rain. I mean, you know, climate change is affecting us in, in so many different ways, which is one of many reasons why, you know, I so admire your work, but, you know, when you're the mayor and you've got 15 inches of snow on the ground, unlike some other jobs, like you can't just like go and give a speech. <laughs> you know, I mean, people like, okay, well, that was interesting, but you got 15 inches of snow and people need to get to work or go to school or whatever. So they expect you to do something. Um, and so every day in the local government, you know, we've got public safety, education, jobs, economic development. You know, people like water to come out of the faucet, clean water, you know, in the morning. They like the street lights to work. And so you're responsible for all that stuff. And so they don't want to hear about budget challenges or this one doesn't get along with that one or I'm in a fight with my city council or so-and-so didn't speak to me or take me out to dinner. or Like this local citizen, they have no time for any of that. And so we could never get away with local government people. We could never get away with the kind of nonsense that often we see sometimes at the state or federal level. Now, that's not to say at the local level, we don't have our own nonsense, because we do. But usually it's a personal or political, but you know, no big impact on the citizenry. So every day as a mayor, you get judged. You don't need to poll very much. The public will let you know, you know is it working? Is it not working? And let that be your guide
1: so i'd like to now move to the mike nutter leadership principles or management style and i'd like to use sustainability initiatives climate change sustainability to talk about them because you got some important things done and talk about some of them and what you accomplished how you did it and what you learned well
0: I learned from many, many different leaders. You know, until more recently, there was really no mayor school. Uh, You know, Mike Bloomberg teamed up with Harvard and created the Bloomberg-Harvard City Leadership Initiative. But when I was coming along, you know, we just learned from each other. So after I won that Democratic primary in 2007, I went to two cities to meet the leaders. I went to Chicago and I met Mayor Daley for the first time. And I went to New York and I met Mike Bloomberg. And a huge part of the inspiration for our sustainability efforts in Philadelphia actually came from Chicago. I've been talking about sustainability you know, during the campaign and all that, but meeting with Rich Daly really set me on a path. He took me up to the roof, of course, of City Hall, where they have the garden up there. One of the first in the nation. He talked about the need for... You know beauty that when people come out of their homes they should see the landscape and he was an early on person about the importance of sustainability planting trees and dealing with stormwater management and those kinds of issues so i took a lot of that back to philadelphia and i learned much of the same from Mayor bloomberg in new york the importance of 311 systems and the ability to connect citizens to their services and so i announced at the first inauguration and my staff didn't know I was gonna say this. I mean, it's literally written in the margins of my inaugural speech that I was gonna make Philadelphia the number one green city in America.
1: Yeah.
0: And they heard it for the first time when I said it from the stage, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, look, it's the first day, we don't even have a plan. But about a year later, we announced uh, GreenWorks Philadelphia. And it was our plan to, uh, to if not number one, to be a you know, prominent player. And we made Philadelphia prominent in that way. You know, this is an important city as it relates to sustainability. You know, we've got the four seasons. I mean, the four real seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter. We get, you know, a fair amount of snow and rain and, and significant weather events. Stormwater management uh, is a very serious issue. We have flooding in a variety of places uh, in our city. But also, Hank, often tied our sustainability efforts to jobs. And so I talked about the need for, you know, alternative energy sources I talked about wind and solar and that we could put people to work. I talked about why recycling was so important, at least at the time. And there was a market for recyclables, you know, unlike now. And so what I tried to do with sustainability is to always connect it to the people. That, you know, sometimes these loftier goals and you talk about, you know, rising sea level and the, you know, the ozone layer and, you know, icebergs and, you know, breaking away, et cetera, et cetera. I always tried to make it relatable that it was about saving your neighborhood. It was about jobs. It was about economic opportunity. And many of our citizens, I think, really got it and they were enthusiastic about it. And that's where the any success came from.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for a number of years now, the progress that's being made in climate change has been at the city level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I assume you believe that they could play an even bigger role if the cities were bolstered by better state or national policies, right?
0: There's no question about that. But you know, interestingly enough, you know, and I, I talked to, as I know you do, I, I mean, I talked to a lot of mayors across the country. And when Donald Trump announced that the United States was, uh, for instance, was gonna pull out of the Paris Agreement. I feel very comfortable in saying that not one mayor in the United States of America paid any attention to that at all. Because if you're a mayor in Florida, you know that climate change is real with rising sea level. If you're out in California with the fires, if you're in the middle of the country with the flooding, if you're up in the Northeast, some of the severe, I mean, hang in 2020, we literally ran out of the names that are normally used for hurricanes. I mean, we're now into the Greek alphabet, right? So, you know, it's real, it's serious. And so at the local level, you don't have time for this kind of nonsense. You will not virtually not be able to find a mayor who's a climate denier. They get it, they understand it.
1: Yeah, they see it. Now I'm gonna switch, we've been talking about the US, I'm gonna talk about China a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because you've joined me in meetings with Chinese mayor, Mm -hmm. and I think mayors, and you've done this both in the United States and And China, China. yeah. You sent me to China, yeah. Yeah. And you know, and and the Chinese, as you know, are dealing with urbanization on a massive scale, massive, yeah. So, whether in China or the U.S., I think mayors, both places are problem solvers, yeah, and they seem to have a natural affinity for one another, Mm -hmm. so. Today, you know, relations between our two countries are particularly yeah. fraught. Right. And I think they're going to be that way for the foreseeable future. Hmm. Talk a bit about your experiences with China, what yeah. you've seen the Chinese companies, Chinese yeah. investors, the mayors who are your counterparts, and hmm. what advice would you have for the Biden administration as they seek to manage this very important bilateral relationship?
0: Well, Again, I I will always appreciate and always thank you in any forum for encouraging me and supporting me to go to China when I was uh, president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors back in 2012, Uh, and just an incredible experience. And obviously, you know, 2012 is like almost a lifetime ago, but the memories remain and the experiences. One of the amazing things, I don't know how many Americans know this. I mean, you know, in China, a small city is like 5 million people. (laughs) you know? so it, it's I mean it's just at a very different scale a
1: big, a big city's 30 million right yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah we have nothing like that but I specifically met directly with the, both the mayors of Tianjin which is a sister city of Philadelphia and uh, Beijing Beijing was the main reason that I went to give that talk uh, back then I found great relationships and great respect in all the encounters that i've had whether in the states or the one time in china i think mayors do understand each other at a level and can get even breakthrough uh, if there are you know language barriers you know many of the chinese mayors would say to me well you know my english is not that good and i would say but i speak no chinese so you know <laughs> you're still in a better situation than i am But they feel the same pressures. And regardless of, you know, our systems are different in terms of, you know, how you become mayor in either of the countries, um, but they still have the responsibility. I don't know if it's still the case, but at the time, one of their big metrics was GDP, which fascinated me because that's not a metric generally for an American mayor. And so they were grappling with infrastructure challenges, clean water, clean air, you know, plants and just the influx of people into their cities and the inability of their infrastructure to handle it. But when you talk about the incoming Biden administration and trying to deal with China, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a global politic, international relations that goes with that. But I would encourage you know, because even in China, basically, it's mayors have to get stuff done to serve people. And so, if the Biden administration were able, and certainly with your support. Convene as many meetings, summits, conferences between and among American mayors and mayors in China. I think that would actually help the national politics of it. I during my time certainly encouraged Chinese business people to come to Philadelphia and to invest. One of the mayors brought a delegation to Philadelphia with business people. They're looking for investment here, and many American businesses are looking for investment opportunities in China. People still want to do business and we could be each other's greatest partners. I remind people all the time, my job was to fill potholes and pick up trash. So, you know, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on the international relations component of it and trade deficits, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you put a bunch of mayors together in a room, they would actually start to solve some of these problems.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing just to resonate two things you say. When times are the most difficult between Beijing and Washington, Building bridges is very important. Mm-hmm. And as many bridges as we can have, it's, it's yeah. hard to go to war and fight with people that you know and that are friends. Yeah. And I think the mirror-to-mirror bridges are particularly important. Yeah. The other thing, which today, when you go to China, and I haven't been now because of the pandemic for a while, but in addition to reciting GDP, they're all reciting air quality numbers, environmental you know, targets that are being yeah, met. Yeah. They have a big focus on that.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, I want to now get your view on another big issue. In the wake of this pandemic, there's been a lot of speculation as to what the future holds for cities. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't long ago, you know, when we started with the economic strategy group that we were talking about people flocking to the cities and the urban rural divide was yeah. a major concern. Yeah. Now, you know, many are fleeing the city, yeah. okay? And to what extent will COVID-19 and its economic aftermath impact cities? Yeah. And how should city leaders be responding? Is this, yeah. is this just a short-term phenomena? Is it going to have a longer-term tail? How do you see it?
0: I'm tending more to the side of a, you know, slightly longer tail. I don't, I don't think this is going to be a blip. Uh, On the screen, but I think that there are ways for us to deal with this. First of all, there is still something, I mean, you know, hopefully no one is out there saying that, you know, cities are dead. You know, we we have surprised people numerous times. All of them have certainly taken a hit. People who can, you know, get to the suburbs or get to their other place or, you know, want to be in a bigger house or need room, you know, because of, of COVID-19, we, we certainly understand that. Uh, remote work, you know, I think is going to continue to be a thing for some time. I think American businesses, are, you know, internationally, people are figuring out, you know, maybe we don't have to have everybody in the office. Maybe we don't have to have all this real estate, maybe we, you know. But there is still something to the liveliness of cities that you just can't get in some other places. I think first and foremost, you know, cities like the states and obviously the federal government, we have to get this virus under control. And I think once that happens, you actually will see some people, you know, coming back to cities. We've got to get kids in school safely and adults back to work safely. It really jumpstart the economy, the federal government. We've got to break through. Uh, this idea of the federal government almost fundamentally starving cities. You know, all the efforts that took place back in the spring, many of which need to be replicated. I mean, the Federal Reserve and the Fed chair, so many others calling for increased investment in cities and states. I mean, all of these things go together. And it's not like I'm sitting here saying anything of any brilliance. I think they all know this. This is just bad politics. And we've we've got to figure out how to break through it. You know, a city like Philadelphia is very easy for people to stay in the suburbs and still have business activity uh, in the city. And so I think cities are really going to be forced, they haven't already, to have better relationships with their regional political jurisdictions and, and figure out now how to fully function more as a region and not just as a city by itself and slowly get economic activity back in in the cities. But we need to stop competing with our suburbs and embrace them as partners.
1: You know, to just emphasize one thing you said, it's bad politics and it's terrible economic policy not be providing stimulus money to the cities. So all those that argue, well, we're bailing them out, would be bailing them out of mismanagement. No, that's not the case. False. The, The other programs the other stimulus have, have been designed to replace income that was lost because of the pandemic, whether right. it's to small businesses or to individuals. Well, yeah. guess what? Right. Replacing part of the money the cities have lost is essential. And one of the things we learned in 2008 coming out of that crisis mm-hmm. is we would have come out quicker, but state and local governments, particularly cities had problems. And yes. so there's a big impact to money going to the cities. Right. Big, big impact, and it's absolutely.
0: A, and it's a, it's a shame that it hasn't happened. And the interesting, one last point on that. And so the federal government stepped up. It started in '08, uh, while, of course, you were still there, and then carried over into the Obama administration. You can always find, you know, a few things here or there, but I mean, there were virtually no issues, no problems, no scandals with uh, the cities and the counties and the states out of the big uh, economic stimulus program from 2008 and 2009. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's this fiction that, you know, and, and the politics, you know, oh, we're going to bail out these democratic cities that mismanage themselves. I mean, the government literally put people out of work yeah. in this pandemic right, <laughs> to save lives
1: government did, the government did. And if if there's ever the right role for government, it's to replace at least part of that revenue. Yeah. Now, one last question, Mike. Mm -hmm. So young people today, yeah, you know, what advice would you give the young people who are interested in pursuing a career in public service or local government? and, And would your advice differ at all for a young black professional?
0: The advice would be the same, you know, I give everybody pretty much the same advice. Get engaged, get involved, pay attention to what's going on. There are numerous opportunities to serve, local, state, federal, uh, just in your community. You know, you, you don't have to start out trying to run for mayor or governor or, or something. There are school boards, there's general assemblies and state legislatures. There's, you know, get on a, an advisory board, you know, find your passion, figure out how you can fit in meet people get engaged get involved and you know if people want change you have to be a part of the change you know it's not like changing the channel on the tv i mean you actually have to do something
1: Yeah, that's best advice i've heard in a long time because you know so many people want to start at the wrong level if you're a young person you can afford almost anything other than not to learn and you've got to get your hands dirty, you've got to learn your stuff, mm-hmm. get involved, do a good job, and one thing will lead to another, right?
0: Absolutely, there's no question about it. I mean, that's how I came up, uh, that's how I, I learned. I mean, as I mentioned, I lost that first city council race. I mean, you know, look, I've won and I've lost, I know which one I like better. And I didn't know it at the time, but actually the best thing that happened to me was to lose that first race. I learned about myself, I learned about other people, but most importantly, I also learned that I really don't like to lose and I never lost another race after that.
1: <laughs> That's a good lesson. Mike, thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you a lot today. I'm really glad that you continue to be so active in the most important issues of today.
0: Well, Thanks for having a good time. And, and I appreciate our friendship and relationship and you keep me pretty active too.
1: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.